Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We're headed to the home stretch of football season and basketball is in full swing. And BetOnline remains the number one spot for all the action this year. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code BLEAVE50, B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all of your favorite sports. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It. Easy Podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Friday, December 3rd. We are going to get ready to kick off a fun weekend of football here on the podcast with our friend Razor Rosenthal. And usually we don't do these types of podcasts, but this one feels like a time where the preview podcast feels of most appropriate measures because it's the end of a weird college football season and weird implications. And of course, the Bama-Georgia game this weekend, which if you've been following college football seriously, which I like to think we've done a healthy amount this year, but it's really just been a lot of jokes all over the place. But if you've been following college football to a healthy degree, this game is kind of the one that everyone had circled going back to the start of the year when Clemson started to fall and Ohio State fell to Oregon. We were talking about Oregon building this West Coast power, and now USC wants to get into that West Coast power game, and Cristobal might not stay. And you're seeing this power gap in college football, and we're having like fun discussions about Cincinnati. But in the grand scheme of what will this matter 15 years from now, doesn't matter at all. What mattered was the Alabama And the Georgia matchup, we were on a crash course towards earlier in the season. And yes, Alabama lost to Texas A&M, which is one of those results we can laugh at along the way. And if you had to tell me the process to get there, would not have guessed that this would be the way they go. But here we are anyways. And now Alabama is going to play Georgia for the SEC championship, a game that like eight weeks has been circled on the calendar as like one versus two game of the year. And Does it feel like all the drama has been dragged out of this one a little bit? Because I remember the last time we did a game like this, where everyone had been waiting for this one game for weeks and weeks, other than Ohio State and Michigan last week to a certain degree, because that that had real stakes and storylines, and the game mattered, and it was a top-five matchup, and it was rivalry, and it was a game that, that had legitimate power not just in college football, but across the landscape as a whole. And then, you know, Michigan walloped them. But the last time we did something like this, where we're like, this has a potential for an all-time instant classic game, was two years ago with LSU and Alabama. Because we talked about the last time that we had number one versus number two play in the regular season 
was LSU and Bama a decade before in a game that people remember as like the 10-6 overtime game that kind of was the turning point for Nick Saban getting actual quarterbacks and actually recruiting offenses that could put up 45 points any given week against Arkansas. That change from that game is one that's like remembered when you're thinking about what are what are t- when you're telling stories of college football what are games that tell a moment that LSU Auburn or LSU Alabama game from 2010 feels like one of those that is not a playoff type of game and sometimes you have games that surprise you like that it happens all the time it happened three years ago in the SEC championship with Alabama playing Georgia and uh, Tua had replaced Jalen Hurts the year before and won the championship in the classic Alabama-Georgia game. And uh, Tua was losing in the fourth quarter, gets hurt, Jalen Hurts comes in, leads a 14-point comeback. One of those games that if you're going through like narrative-based college football history, other than just listing Heismans, which is something some people do to tell college football seasons, list Heismans and list national champions. But if you're telling like a narrative-based story, if you're going through a documentary of 20 years of college football and you're using games to tell stories, because obviously narratives can tell stories as well. Like, what is the, the narrative right now in college football? Well, it's about LSU going from that dominant powerhouse in 2019 to falling off the face of the earth, riled in scandal. It's name, image, and likeness. It's the changing landscape of college football where coaches make major jumps like Jimbo Fisher four years ago, like... Uh, Lincoln Riley last week, Brian Kelly this most recent week, the SEC becoming basically a minor league system where if you're not doing it in three years, you're getting fired just like the same pressures of the NFL. You're seeing that changing landscape in college football, some for better, some for worse. I think it's impossible to ask for the entire system to be blown up, um, but the pandemic has sped along real legitimate change in a sport that does not change very much. And so, yes, we can tell the narrative that way. And sometimes it's more fun to tell the narrative by the games that are being played instead of the power broking behind the scenes. Because you'll get a different story regardless of how you tell it. And if you're telling narratives based on games, like select moments that we remember that click and don't have playoff implications. Because obviously there's so few playoff games in college football and there's so many stakes behind those three games that those end up dominating the narratives when you look back five years from now. Give you an example. Remember that year, 2017? Do you remember anything that happened that year other than Jalen Hurts getting benched in the championship game and Tua Tagovailoa leading a comeback against Georgia? And maybe you'll throw out the answer, well, the week before in the Rose Bowl, Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma and Georgia played a double overtime classic thrilling game that was amazing and fun, and we barely remember it even though it was maybe one of the great college football games of all time. So the the college football has set up a system where those games create so many stakes and storylines, which, to be honest, is a pretty good system to have. The NBA doesn't really have that. NBA has like one moment that you remember because the playoffs go on for so long. Baseball has entire playoffs that if you really, really love baseball, it captivates you in that way. And if you're telling a narrative, you can tell a narrative through an entire postseason. Baseball has done really, really well at capturing that. And the NFL is obviously a national sport with tremendously huge stakes on one game sample sizes. And so the NFL and baseball have done this better than anyone else. College football is right there at that part. But generating the stakes and storylines to tell narratives before that 
is especially difficult given as well that the same power broking teams have been at the top for about seven years now, which college football used to be a similar place where we could talk about like the Miamis and the Florida States that used to dominate according to what people say. But if you really go back and look like there has been short lived dynastic programs in college football for my entire lifetime from 2000 to about 2014. And about 2011-2013, when Alabama finally starts to become the wagon that they are now, like the machine of Alabama that keeps churning out winners, and Clemson having multiple national championships, Ohio State making it to multiple national championships, and those being the golden power programs, and everyone else slides in afterwards. For example, go back to the first college football playoff. So you had 2014, with the the last year pre-college football playoff was Florida State, and Auburn. Then you get to the college football playoff era. Here's your championship games. It's Oregon and Ohio State. 2015, Alabama-Clemson. Next year, Alabama-Clemson. Year after that, Alabama-Georgia. Year after that, uh, Clemson and Alabama. Year after that, uh, it is LSU versus, what is it? Who is it that year? I know they beat, oh, Clemson. LSU versus Clemson. And then uh, the year after that, Alabama-Ohio State. So that's kind of the the trend that you've seen across seven years, and that usually does not happen in college football. It's been Florida having a dynasty, but only for about three years, at least in my lifetime. Like you can go back to the Oklahomas and the Miamis and the Florida States of yesteryear, and that's a whole nother game because the money has totally changed in the sport. But you can go back and like Florida has a good three-year run of success. Uh, the University of Miami with the U Part Two, three to four years of success. USC. Four years of success. Oklahoma, three years of success with Adrian Peterson. You see this pivot back and forth, and that hasn't happened in the sport. And so it's very easy to tell the narrative of large years that look at the end result very different than each other. To tell that story, it sometimes can be very, very convenient to tell the story very much in a concerted narrative like you can combine and mix years because you forget who's playing who in a championship and then you have the one magical LSU year that kind of breaks the trend and then they fall off like a normal dynasty would but you still have Ohio State Clemson and Alabama just running through the sport for years and years and Clemson being a weird one as well like it's weird that Clemson's had that level of sustained success for a decade plus and now they're starting to fall a little bit, but you still have the Alabama wagon. You still have the Georgia wagon. That's always been a second tier program and now might be establishing themselves in that same vein with a magical season. And the fact that they didn't choose Jacob Fromm over Justin Fields, which I think set the program back a year or two, which is crazy to think about that one decision like that, losing that generational quarterback could set the program back like a year uh, or two, even for the university of Georgia. That's something they're still reeling from. Obviously, Stenson Bennett is their quarterback now, but the defense is just so overwhelming with five stars. Georgia fills that role as being that type of program. And so it's rare that you have these matchups outside of the playoff. And that's what creates the stakes and storylines that'll be remembered across time. Ohio State-Michigan will do that this year because that game was like a de facto semifinal 
legitimate stakes around a rivalry that has not mattered apart from twice in the last 15 years. It was the the Zeke Elliott double overtime game, and it was this one. That's the only time Michigan and Ohio State has nationally mattered in the larger context of college football. But because that rivalry is like the, the, the old-timey rivalry that everyone gets nostalgic for, like how everyone talks about when the, the Red Sox and Yankees play. We talked about this two months ago when the Red Sox and Yankees played in the wild card because the Red Sox-Yankee narrative, totally different in my lifetime than the narrative that everyone tells about the Yankees and Red Sox blood rivalries hating each other and the Yankees getting the upper hand, but then the Red Sox punching back every now and then. Totally different narrative. Not as much hate, totally one side dominated by the Red Sox. Totally different narrative in my lifetime. In my lifetime, you're seeing this change in college football as well. And the rarity of that matchup of teams that genuinely matter on a national level It's hard to find those games even in the first place because of conferences, and even when you get to conference championships, it's hard to find those matchups that really, truly matter. Georgia and Clemson to start the year felt like it could be one of those, and it was not because Clemson, it was the beginning of the end for Clemson, and we just didn't know it. LSU Alabama felt like that two years ago when it was number one, and it was number two, and we talked about how this might be the game of the decade in college football, and LSU toppled Alabama. Just one year absolutely overwhelmed that entire dynasty. Fantastic game. It's one that will tell the story because it delivered on that. Alabama-Georgia has the potential to be that this weekend simply because what are things that we remember? It is stakes and storylines. That generates interest because that creates selectively shared events that moments that we all remember watching we can all connect and bond over it's really weird how sports work that way and I say it a lot but this time it's particularly true that you have stakes and storylines behind this one game that can matter when telling the grand story of college football and I find that to be immensely interesting and immensely fascinating just from a sports nerd standpoint when you know that you're sitting right through a moment in history that will be called upon again, that will be recapped again 10 years from now, possibly. It's really interesting to sit through it. Maybe that's an inner history nerd myself, but I find that really interesting to be like, it happens with the Super Bowl all the time because you know the Super Bowl will always be something that remembered. It's why we always get like two weeks excited for the Super Bowl, and then on Super Bowl Sunday, we get like jitters and nerves, and it's all fun. Or maybe I just get that, but you get jitters and nerves because you know no matter what happens, it's going to be a historical moment because you can define entire NFL seasons by that Super Bowl potentially, but at least it jogs the recollection of all the other things. For example, go back to uh, 2018. The, the Rams and the Patriots Super Bowl that was really boring, like 13-3. But whenever I hear that, it jogs the memory of, oh, that was the year I refell in love with football. That was the year Patrick Mahomes threw 50 touchdowns. That was the year the Saints were scoring 35 points a game. The Rams were scoring a ridiculous amount of points. The, the Rams and the Chiefs were playing that 52-54 to Monday night football game that's remembered forever. That jogs the memory just by recognizing the Super Bowl and remembering where I was for that Super Bowl. And this is the cool part of telling narratives and stories and recalling histories of football and sports as a whole, which I just find immensely interesting the same way that history as a whole is immensely interesting to me because I love 
telling stories. We do a lot of that here on the podcast. We just really, really love telling stories. And this is a story that will come into focus, maybe being told other than just when we play the national championship or whether or not Alabama gets in or not. Because 2014 is the year where we remember the committee being weird about figuring out the growing pains of this process of the college football playoff. And this year might be the same thing if Alabama gets left in or left out. Maybe it'll be forgotten later on because, again, there's just these one dominant power of Georgia. And maybe Michigan gets to finally push through because they beat Ohio State. And that's the moment that they, for one year, topple the power structure that has been really, really consistently stable at the top of college football for seven years in a totally unprecedented run of success for Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, and Ohio State. And you can throw LSU in for the one year breaking everything up. But for the most part, it's been that power structure for seven years, getting closer to a decade now in college football, a very distinct era that can be summed up that easily because of who dominated the sport so much over the others. But if you want to get into the nuanced layers of telling the story, this is a great way to get there. And this week is one of those where it feels like a Super Bowl Sunday coming up on uh, on Saturday, not not necessarily in the, the stakes of the game, but just in the emotions that you know you're sitting through something that's going to be when you think back on this season, when you think on this moment, it has a championship game type of feel. Not that the SEC championship game matters. I didn't watch the SEC championship game last year between Alabama and Florida. Wake Forest is playing Pitt this weekend in the ACC championship. Like, it's not that the conference championship matters. I don't give a shit about SEC football that way. I like college football from the national narrative standpoint. I I don't really give a shit about who wins the SEC championship in 2020 or 2021. What's interesting is the national storyline of these are the two best teams in college football. They happen to be playing in a game that does not have championship stakes to it, but sure as heck feels like an elimination game, at least for Alabama. Because Alabama has really put themselves in a compromised position that they might need someone to bail them out. We're just not used to that happening in college football where someone needs to bail out Alabama. Yes, they still control their own destiny for now, but when Georgia's a seven-point favorite, we've only seen them allow 84 points the entire season while in every game post-week one against Clemson scoring more than 30 points, you start to expect that wagon and what you've seen across a 12-game sample size to continue even as you've seen the Alabama train dominate for the most part of a decade now in college football. And that's just name reputation that makes me a coward and thinks Alabama's going to win the game. But again, that's me being a coward and not believing in the power of Stenson Bennett other than just to deliver wonderful, wonderful memes. It has championship game vibes tomorrow and not like SEC championship, like Super Bowl feels behind it as we get ready for this game on Saturday that if you've listened to this already or you're listening to this the day before, maybe you can relate to what I'm talking about. Maybe this podcast will only be relevant for about three days and we'll move on from it. But what will not be relevant is our gambling preview heading into this weekend because after Saturday, you won't be able to hit your bets. But we still love our conversations with Razor Rosenthal. We are gonna, This was a really bad way to introduce him and all the cool stuff they're doing over at Beer Life Sports, which you can check out, of course, uh, with the link in the description to this episode. 
doing a really, really poor job of transitioning here, but uh, maybe I should quit while I'm down. Here we are with a wonderful college football NFL podcast with our great friend, Razor Rosenthal of Beer Life Sports, Beer Life Official, and BeerLife.com, which you can check out, of course, all the great work he's doing and use his promo code with the link in the description to today's episode. So uh, that was a, that was about a 3 out of 10 transition. I, I expect better from myself, uh, but I'm not going to erase it. I'm not going to go back and re-record this. I expect better from myself. We'll try again next week. Here we are with Razor Rosenthal. New sponsor alert here on the Take It Easy podcast. It is Lightbox Jewelry. Using cutting-edge technology and innovative techniques, Lightbox Jewelry has cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds that you can find at a light price of just $800 per carat. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the gift they'll never want to take off, priced so they won't have to. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox Diamonds. Never a dull moment. Man, I'm doing great. I hope you are as well. Uh, as we continue to progress here to the end of the NFL, NC2A football, the middle of the NBA season, um, we're really excited here at Beer Life Sports. That's who I work for. That's who I represent. Um, you know, we have our top handicapper, the Oracle, that we really brought on this fall. He's just kicking butt. Kyle right now currently stands at plus 75 units for all action from when this whole thing started uh, Labor Day weekend all the way currently through the first week of December. Again, if I if I can plug, if you don't mind, uh, beerlife.com, sign up today, use the promo code RAZOR50, RAZOR50. That will get you 50% off your first month's dues, which are $49.95. That will be reduced to $25, and you're going to get simply great, plays daily center your phone all sports sometimes it's just one sport it's really just based on the model uh what the oracle likes and if it's just the nfl that day you won't see anything else perhaps it's just nhl Uh, we're making money for our customers and it's just grows and grows each day so we're really excited i mean two weeks ago we were only at like 40 units and now you're up to 75 so it's been a been a heck of a two and a half week stretch for you guys over there and again if people are listening there's a link in the description to this episode so if you if you look for the the words that say the oracle you can click it's a clickable link it's a fun little thing it looks like normal words but it's blue so you can click it so yeah that that's a cool idea for people checking in um anything else cool going on there with the oracle yeah well we've launched a podcast we we put together live podcasts or should say not podcast because podcasts are recorded i should say live shows using some sort of podcast platform him and i were on last night taking questions for our subscribers so we're really working hard to try to build this niche of you know interaction with customers uh, something that not a lot of gambling platforms offer but we're trying to do our best at beer life sports to do that well, I'm glad to hear that things are going well and that you've dabbled more into the podcast game. That uh, that That is exciting. As someone who is a nerd for podcasts, that is exciting to hear for all of you guys over there. We're trying to be as big as you, Kyle. Not, not easy, but we're trying to reach that level because you have a great fan base. Yes. Shout out to, to all of the people here with the record-setting month last month to all the people I love here. So, uh, yeah. Anyways, so what has you intrigued going into the weekend? Because there's obviously a bunch of NFL stuff. College has like 10 games and about two of them are really interesting. 
Uh, obviously, we can talk about other college football news if you just want to talk about that as well, because I know that was the the big landscape shifting news of the week. But uh, what what do you see as intrigue going into the weekend? Well, let's just start with the fact that I came on your show last week and I was wrong about Ohio State. They looked intimidated. They got pushed around. I didn't see that coming. Uh, I think the weather played a huge factor, Kyle. That that offense just really could not execute. They didn't have the big plays that just really, really helped Michigan out, I think, tremendously with two great running backs. The weather provides that opportunity to run the ball much better than passing. No excuses there. I had Ohio State and Oregon in a money line parlay that just did not come through. Uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm really impressed by Michigan. Uh, you know, I, I knew their defense was pretty good, but they played lights out to hold Ohio State to, you know, a few touchdowns because I think garbage time does not count to me. And more importantly, red zone field goals. So we like Michigan. I, I think Michigan's a good football team. I think they will take care of business uh, in Indianapolis and beat Iowa. Iowa's just, I mean, no threats, right, for Iowa. Decent defense, not enough weapons, I think, to uh, hang with the Michigan Wolverines. Cincinnati Bearcats, you know, again, continue to win. Uh, pretty nice test against Houston coming up here on Saturday afternoon. I think they'll win that game. And, you know, I think at this point, I don't believe they should be there, Kyle, but they probably are going to be in the final four just because Oklahoma state had that loss in Ames, Iowa. And that's going to put them in a position where can you accept a one loss team over an undefeated team? I think you can. I think the pokes to me are the, the outside team that should be in more so than even Notre Dame. But um, well, this is interesting, too, because they're setting up this weekend for that shift to be made because Baylor is play or Baylor is a top 10 team in the college football playoff rankings. So does a top 10 victory do enough for Oklahoma State to jump up there? Is it fast? I feel like it's setting up for that to be a possibility. And then of course, uh, the Alabama-Georgia thing. But it's interesting because I feel like they might be setting up to screw Cincinnati just a little bit. Well, they could. And I think Oklahoma State beats Baylor for the second time this year, this on a neutral. Uh, I, I, I believe the Cowboys' defense is phenomenal. I, I think what they did against Oklahoma, making that comeback, that late surge down nine points early in the fourth quarter, uh, proved to me that they are a really good football team. As far as Alabama goes, interesting storyline there. I mean, they're really struggling uh, as of late. Obviously, that Auburn game was unbelievable how Auburn lost that game. All of, all that kid had to do on second down and apologize for not knowing his name, one of the uh, Auburn running backs. Uh, if he doesn't go out of bounds, the game is pretty much over. I'll give Alabama a you know 7% chance of winning the game because there just would not have been enough time. But when you when you go out of bounds and you give uh, Alabama an opportunity with uh, one minute, perhaps 27 seconds versus 37 seconds, it's just a massive shift there. So Alabama is going to have to come out and play really well, probably has to at least cover the number to remain as the number four overall seed. But it's tough. I mean, if, if Alabama loses this game, they would be a two loss team and they would play Georgia again on New Year's Eve. I think they have to win this game now. I think that they're they're going to feel the pressure, and I like Georgia. I, I think I think Georgia's hitting on all cylinders, all phases of the game. Special teams is so solid. Defense is incredible. Their offense pretty much has done what they wanted to do each game. So uh, Georgia, a six-point favorite against Alabama. I I tell you, I, I think the Georgia Bulldogs are going to come out and, and really stuff it. I, I think I think Georgia will win this game. 
by at least nine to 11 points. And I think that may put Alabama out of the playoffs. That could put Oklahoma State and Cincinnati in. Or does it put Notre Dame in if Oklahoma State stumbles? So there are good storylines this Saturday. So in the case of Alabama, um, I, I was interested about that game because I saw the over-under is sitting around like 43, 44 points. And I found that to be like remarkably low. But also Georgia hasn't really allowed more than like 17 points in any game this year. And then the counter is, well, they haven't played an offense like Alabama. And so I just wanted to throw out the like 43 and a half, 43 over under number and and wanted to see what you thought about that for this game. I I think it's I think it's a a very good chance this game stays under the posted total as long as we don't go to overtime. I mean, you're looking at two very good defenses. What has Alabama done over the last sample size against really good teams to impress you on offense? They had a really good offensive performance against Ole Miss, average against Florida, who is not a good football team. Obviously, lost to Texas A&M. Uh, and Kyle, you know, I think the combination of you and I and picking up maybe nine other guys could probably score more than 11 points on Auburn. You know, so that was really disappointing to see Alabama. If you're a Bama fan or a Bama backer, you know, this year, just assuming you're going to probably lay a 30 spot on Auburn and that just didn't even come close. So I think the books are going to probably bait a lot of gamblers to say, oh, this game's going over. Georgia will at least score, you know, 29 and Alabama will at least score 20. Yeah, I I don't know. I I could see this game being a a 24-14 type of game and remaining a touchdown under the total. Two very elite defenses competing in a high-pressure game tends to lead to a low-scoring game. Yeah, and and credit to Georgia because they've scored 30 points. I think in every game for like I want to say the whole season. I think they've I, I think since the Clemson game, I think they've scored 30 points in every game this year, which is obviously college football being weird like that, but that's just a testament to Georgia being by far the most dominant team this year. Is just their defense has only allowed like 84 points the entire season and then flip it on the other side, their offense is still scoring a bunch of points and they've dominated every team they played, of course. And so I guess that's the part where I was interested in the, in where that would sit because you, you think that there's a good possibility this does stay under because obviously both of these teams are built on the, the prowess of their defense. Yeah. You hit it on the nail and I'll tell you a game that I'm actually very excited to watch. I'm not going to bet it because we talked about this three weeks ago on your podcast, Utah, Oregon. You know, I, I love Utah at home. Wasn't a big play for me. And now we shift gears into a fast track, no weather issues, neutral field. Probably, I would say maybe a 60-40 split. Probably more Utah fans there. I think Oregon Duck fans would have traveled better if they were in a position to get to the playoffs. I, I like Oregon here in a small spot. I would probably, you know, buy a point to get that to plus three and a half. But I don't trust them that much. I do love the scenario and the situation presented to them playing in in that field on a neutral. But this is an exciting game. This is a blue-collar Utah team, not exciting, good defense that finally has come to life. It took about five weeks against an Oregon team that has potential. Has, you know, and that their Potential doesn't mean a whole lot if you don't use it. But they have the potential, as you saw on offense against Oregon State. They could put up a lot of points. Small lean Oregon by the point to three and a half, but a no play for me. 
You said back a few weeks ago when you were in on Utah that, uh, well, you taught me that Utah had a chance to win that game and then they drubbed Oregon. You said you expected them to split the games this year. So by that logic, Utah's got one. Theoretically, Oregon would win the second one if you stick with the original prognostication of Oregon and Utah playing twice and Oregon and Utah splitting. Uh, My favorite stat from that first Utah game also was that Utah scored like 38 points in three quarters and their longest run was 17 yards. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that just shows you that they are blue collar. Take your time, matriculate down the field and just, you know, just dice you up, carve you up. And that is not Oregon style. But again, a different scenario here, Kyle, like backs against the wall. Utah needed that game. They needed to just really clearly solidify the Pac-12 South. Well, they're here. They're you know they're in the big show. But I tell you what, I think Utah and their fan base, their players, their coaching staff are probably really eager to get to Pasadena uh, for the first time. So Utah has a great opportunity to put themselves on the map in Pasadena on New Year's Day. Uh, Oregon's been there, done that, but I still think they have enough talent. Uh, to win this game and obviously cover the number of three and a half should be a field goal game if everything goes to plan. Does Wake Forest and Pitt do anything for you on Saturday? It's so disappointing as an ACC fan and alumni to see this transpire because Charlotte is a great ACC town for both football and basketball when the right teams are competing. Uh, Bank of America Stadium is a wonderful venue, the home of the Carolina Panthers, and it's a really fun environment to see 50% 50% of fan base, you know, uh, and want, you know, all over the stadium and 50% on the other Kyle. Um, you know, I think it's probably a harder ticket to go to your local movie theater than to get us, than to get a ticket <laughs> at bank of America stadium. Listen, Wake Forest uh, alumni do heavily live in Mecklenburg County, which is Charlotte, huge alumni base there. But their fan base is just not passionate about football. But they should be. This is a good football team. This is a legitimate team that I think uh, can do something in, in, a, in a legit bowl game. And now, you know, I, I think a team like Wake Forest plays an Oregon Ducks team who doesn't care to be there in the Cotton Bowl or, you know, or Ole Miss. You know, Wake Forest is going to play hard, scrappy, and they can beat teams uh, like I just mentioned of Ole Miss and Oregon like. And I think they, they are a better team than Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh at times has showed you that they are not that good. The Western Michigan game, the Clemson game, the Miami game, the Clemson game they won, but they looked horrible first half. I like Wake in this game. I I think Wake's defense is probably the biggest surprise in the ACC this year. They used to be terrible. They're pretty good. Wake Forest wins this game. They take the ACC championship and just – shocking uh, preseason when I think you probably everybody and their mother would have bet everything on Clemson if you would have got even money odds. Well, it's not happening, folks. Wake wins. They are your ACC champs. I love the the flex of Dave Clawson at Wake Forest getting offered the head coaching job at Virginia Tech and him just saying, nah, I'm good. I'll stay over here with small budget Wake Forest. We're, we're good over here. We don't, we don't need Virginia Tech. We'll hold out for a better job, even though a better job might not be coming. Dave, shout out to that. That was, my fu- that was my favorite part of this last crazy week of the coaching cycle. Well, good for Dave Clawson because I do agree with you what you just said. I, I don't think it's a major stepping stone right now. Virginia Tech 
is an irrelevant football program. You know, there's no Michael Vick anymore. There, there, that, that program really hasn't done anything in a long time. Sure, they've reached the ACC championship game a few times since joining the conference and representing the Coastal. But right now, Wake Forest is in, in really good shape. And, and as you probably know, Kyle, I mean, Wake Forest is an incredible school. It's beautiful. They have very good facilities. They may not be large like Virginia Tech, but they are beautiful. And Clawson, I, I would wait too. I, I would I would probably wait for an SEC opening, get paid a lot more money, go to a program where you probably will build easier than you than you can in Virginia Tech. The pipeline of all of those kids that used to come from the Chesapeake area where Michael Vick is from, Hampton, Virginia, Newport News, that's gone. Virginia Tech has lost that battle. It, it's over. So Virginia Tech is a tough place to recruit compared to 10 to 20 years ago. So I, I applaud Clawson. Be loyal wait for the better job and build at Wake Forest. You know, Clemson's if Clemson stays down, why can't Wake Forest compete for an Atlantic title Atlantic title for a couple years to come? It's weird to think about, isn't it? Because the ACC's traditional powers have all kind of fallen on hard times. Obviously, like we expect Clemson to rebound, but it's not a guarantee by any stretch. They did pretty good to end the season, obviously. But other than that, I mean Florida State has fallen on hard times. Boston College just recently changed coaches. Syracuse isn't that good. Louisville isn't that good. It's just it's a weird power dynamic in the ACC as a whole in a conference that 60% of the teams finished with either five, six, or seven wins this year, including like big name programs. Well, yeah, I mean, North Carolina was a massive disappointment for the ACC. I think if the ACC could redo this season and you're John Swafford, and you want to create uh, revenue at the ACC championship game, uh, you probably want Carolina to reach that title game, and you want Clemson as well. That place would be rocking on Saturday night, and that's just not happening. So Carolina, huge disappointment. Clemson, a bigger one. And I think Miami, my my man Manny Diaz, uh, as I expected, did not disappoint losing games he shouldn't have. And I think Miami could be good because this conference is bad if they can reach out and find the right coach with, of course, a new AD. They need a new AD that has vision, that cares about football. And it looks like there's a chance it's going to be a former Miami football player. Those are the room in Coral Gables. So this Miami thing has been interesting because it's been like a crazy coaching search, but the coach is still technically employed. And so it feels like Miami's starting to botch this. And at the same time, they could save it with one swift hire given everything that's happened in the college coaching cycles where it looked like how could USC and LSU not hire their coach when they fired their normal coach weeks ago. And then they end up getting the big name coaches all of a sudden, like it it feels like Miami is starting to botch this a little bit. And even still, if they get Cristobal or if they get Lane Kiffin, or if they just get the person that they feel like can turn the program around with new financial commitment, like, Oh, everything's been solved. All of this, debauchery is is in Miami is starting to be fixed a little bit. Well, let me give you two uh, factors here of, of why Manny Diaz remains in his office in Coral Gables. Uh, there, there are two key ones, in my opinion. Uh, one is that they have an AD search as well, Kyle. So I think they want to give this AD who's going to be hired likely before Christmas a chance to uh, make his or her stamp on the new hire. I think I think that's one factor. 
two is I, Miami never wins bowl games. And I, I think they want to give these kids a chance to win a bowl game. And not saying that Manny Diaz is going to make any impact whatsoever. But I think you just kind of want to stick with your head coach for this bowl game and, and say, okay, Manny, this is it. You know, give the, give the win one for the Gipper kind of speech. Let's go out winners in this bowl game. You know, it's probably going to be a very average game, such as the Belt Bowl, Liberty Bowl, wherever Miami ends up. <laughs> but I kind of agree with just keeping everything in place for now and then saying, Manny, thanks for nothing. Uh, we'll see you later. And that probably will transpire right after the bowl game. So I think it's the right call. I think keep Manny Diaz around for the bowl game. I'm sure Manny. Uh, wants to coach it, I would assume. And I think the players like Manny Diaz. It doesn't seem like they quit on him. It just seems like there's a lot of poor discipline during key moments. And Miami it never seems to fail under the Al Golden, Randy Shannon, Man- my, you know, Manny Diaz years. Uh, you know, you had a couple shining moments with Rick, but some really bad hires for the Hurricanes. And, uh, you know, I thought Cristobal would end up at Southern California uh, was wrong there, and uh, I think at this point it's pretty much destiny and fate that he comes back home. Well, what'd you make of the the USC and LSU hires, and come, or even the Notre Dame one too? Because Notre Dame's named their coach now. So, what'd you make of yeah. all of that? Well, you know, Lincoln Riley to me is a guy that has inherited. Got, I think he, you know, got a little lucky, inherited quite a bit of talent. Uh, and in a very average conference. So now he has a chance to almost do the same thing at USC. The talent is probably there, just bad coaching over the years. And he's in a very average conference, right? I mean, Oklahoma has not really had a true superior opponent to deal with over the last four years or so since Riley's been coached. Southern California doesn't have really a major threat either right now. I mean, you cannot... You cannot say that Oregon's going to be unbeatable or Utah. I, I think he's in a good spot, and I think it, it's a pretty good hire. Uh, you know, not expected though. That that was a little bit shocking. Brian Kelly, to me, obviously looks at the situation and says, "Hey, everybody that's come to Baton Rouge has won a national championship within maybe two or three years of arriving." Nick Saban, Les Miles. And Coach O, they all won national championships as as the LSU head coach within two or three years of building their brand. So I I think Brian Kelly probably realizes I can never win a national title with the Notre Dame talent. Maybe I'll reach a Final Four every two to three years. But if this guy can't sleep at night and he has to win a national title, he kind of has to land in an SEC position like LSU and LSU has proven over the last 10 years that they can win national titles. I, I like the hires there. I, I, I think that LSU made a right decision. Brian Kelly's a winner. Lincoln Riley, a little more dicey to me. I think Kelly's the safer hire, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I, 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 it doesn't feel organic for a guy like Lincoln Riley to be in Southern California, but what do I know? I don't make millions. I wish I did. And these, uh, these boosters and these alumni hopefully make the right decision for their schools. Yeah. Lincoln Riley used his leverage quite well in that situation to end up at a, what feels like a forever home for Lincoln Riley, not like forever for the rest of time, but like five to 10 years feels pretty secure. Similarly to how 
Jimbo was when he moved over to Texas A&M is that this is a landing spot destination for, you know, a, a, a generally well-regarded coach. Certainly Lincoln Riley is maybe not the, the, the best of the best, but it was certainly the best USC could do under the circumstances. Yeah, I think I think you got to be happy for Lincoln Riley where you've landed. Um, this has a ton of tradition. But, you know, to me, it's like I, I look at this, Kyle, and I look at uh, Brian Kelly and Notre Dame and what a privilege it is to be be the Notre Dame head coach and you know you just kind of throw it away where so many people had so many have so many dreams to be up there and he just let it go but again I, I think it's probably the right call for him he he wants to uh he wants to win a national title and I just don't see the Fighting Irish doing it with a talent when it comes to that final game or the final four competing against the likes of Georgia and Alabama so good for him and uh, we move on. I mean, there's another, you know, another opportunity for new guys to coach somewhere else. Well, speaking of moving on here, what do you have around the uh, the NFL or I don't know, I guess MLB signings were cool. But what else do you got for us uh, going into the weekend? Yeah, well, here's something that you have to follow. This is a good a good betting trend here Kyle, as we go into week 13. And that would be divisional games, game number two that these teams have already played before. And the under hits at a nearly 70 to 75% clip over the last five years or so. So let me give you some examples, and they're all in the NFC. Minnesota faces Detroit. Tampa Bay faces Atlanta. San Francisco faces Seattle. No, I apologize. They're not all in the NFC. The one AFC showdown is Indianapolis at Houston. All of these teams have faced each other earlier this season. And game number two, I would suggest and recommend just taking the under for every single one of these games because they trend under all the time in this sample size the last five years. I like a lot of those unders. Uh, you know, I haven't really dove into the money line parlay scene quite yet i do have dallas in pocket on money line parlay with the cincinnati bearcats so obviously your listeners are not going to be able to put in the dallas cowboys as i sit here just about an hour or so before kickoff but i I like the dallas cowboys tonight just not enough octane from the new orleans saints and i paired them up with the cincinnati bearcats as my number one money line parlay between now and Saturday. But yeah, focus on those unders, guys. I mean, look look, look at the, those four unders that I gave you. Also, divisional game late in the season is Baltimore-Pittsburgh. That game tends to go under. So th- that would be my, my best analysis for what we have coming up here on Sunday in the NFL. Does that lead you to taking teams with smaller spreads? So like, I'm sorry, teams with larger spreads. So like, for example, if Houston is playing the Colts and that's a 10 point spread or an eight and a half point spread, does that mean you're more inclined to pick Houston or does that have more to do with Houston might not score more than seven points in this game? Yeah, it's more of the latter. I, I, I don't, I don't really trust the Houston, Texas Texans to score a lot of points, but I, I also can see Indianapolis, you know, just decimated by that ridiculous ending in the Buccaneers game. And sometimes these teams come out flat. It's really more or less analytics than it is just me handicapping Houston versus Indianapolis. 
I, I you know, the, the trends are there. And, and, you know, what also I think are these defensive coordinators just get a better read after learning the nuances of the offense. Okay. Well, we saw Carson Wentz seven weeks ago or five weeks ago, whatever it may be. So now, even though our team is terrible, I, I have something to cheat off of, right? I, I know what we did wrong and I'll correct them. It's typically the defensive coordinators have an edge here, apparently, because again, this is hitting at about 71.5% over the last five years, game two divisional opponents. I have a little quiz question for you. Do you know who the defensive coordinator of the Houston Texans is? Buddy Ryan, even though I don't <laughs> think he's alive anymore. I, I don't know that one. You got me good. Yeah, rest, rest in peace to Buddy Ryan. It is a good one. I will have to say I, I when I saw him, uh, I think it was during the Thursday night game a couple weeks or a lot of weeks ago against the Panthers. I got a good smile out of it. It is Lovey Smith. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Is he is he Santa? Is he Santa Lovey again? Does he still have the, the big white beard? Uh, he did not have the beard the last time I saw him. However, that okay. was, I believe, the last week of September. So it's possible that he has grown out the beard in the months since. Lovey Smith is just never, ever going away. I know. I mean, it, it's just a guy that has been around for a long time, but that may explain why Houston's not that good. I mean, Lovey Smith may, this game has, may have passed him. I don't want to say that. I shouldn't say that guy's probably a brilliant coach, but, um, it, you know, Houston, I think he, I think this is his rebound job. He got fired by Illinois last year. So maybe this oh, is his rebound. God. Oh, he was terrible, terrible at Illinois, but, uh, you know, Houston's just not a good football team. And we saw that last week against the Jets. So let's just hope for a lot of garbage. Let's either hope uh, that Indy blows them out, which helps the under, in my opinion, or we just see, you know, a, a scrappy Houston Texan defense figuring it out against Carson Wentz and, and, and the Colts edge them out 20 to 17 and the, and the totals 44 and a half and you're sitting pretty. So that, that's what we're looking at this weekend. I did not expect us to go ridiculously in depth on the on the Houston Texans Indianapolis Colts game of, of all of the choices this weekend. But uh, football analysis is football analysis, and we make you smarter fans here on the Take It Easy podcast. Of course, they all count, Kyle. It doesn't matter whatever you're you're watching or betting. It's all the same value to me. Well, I will take your word for it. I will roll with the Colts and I will roll with the under, even though I won't actually put money on it. I will still hope that that comes through for me. So I will have multiple units on the Colts Texans game on Sunday afternoon at one o'clock. There you have it. Well, let me just tell you this again. I, I don't love a side there. If anything, maybe Indy Moneyline, maybe in a parlay, but I want to go ahead and stick with these analytics on these divisional games under Detroit under Houston, under Seattle, under Atlanta. Let's just hope you hit three out of four. You don't have to hit all four. That's really difficult. If you go two and two, we're okay. But I, I look at these trends. I don't foresee it going 0 and 4 or 1 and 3. This is a good This is a good pick. I like this. This is really in-depth analysis I would not have thought of. Um, yeah, Razor, I appreciate you coming on here. I know... Uh, we have a fun weekend ahead of us and yeah, uh, actually I do have one more thing. Actually, I just remembered. So, uh, after my Thanksgiving on that, that beautiful black Friday holiday, I did watch all of that Gonzaga and Duke game. Um, yeah. I don't, I, you're obviously a college basketball guy as well. And we're a few months out from our March madness spectacular, like we did last year, but, um, 
I I don't know why Chet Holmgren is getting big number or like big products for the draft other than just obviously looking at his just physical body dimensions. But I was watching him and I just didn't see anything super remarkable except for just him looking the part of being Kevin Durant, Slim Reaper with a Dirk Nowitzki fadeaway and all of that. So I don't know if you've watched closer than that or doing like anything in depth like that, but I just wanted to ask you about Gonzaga before we left. I think the big deal, I think, I think watching that game, that was a very good game, by the way, that, that, that showed me that, that Duke actually is legit. And of course, of course they, uh, you know, do not score the remaining three minutes and 42 seconds to lose the game in Columbus. It's amazing with these young kids that they they just don't know how to handle sometimes adversity and success. Uh, Ohio State's not a good basketball team. They're, they're average. They're, they're okay this year. They, they lost some key players. Duke should win that game uh, probably by six to eight points. They, they were a three-point favorite. Going back to Gonzaga, though, uh, yeah, Holmgren weighs about, what, 102 pounds at seven feet, uh, one <laughs> inch tall. I mean, the guy, the guy doesn't he's too big not to be able to bully and he didn't bully anybody on the Duke team. There really wasn't anyone that, that, uh, that had problems with him. Yeah. He scored pretty well. I think Timmy was a huge disappointment early in the game. And I think that's what made the difference. Uh, and what I learned about Gonzaga is, yeah, they're good. They're still always good because they have, you know, six good players, but they're not the same Gonzaga team that had, eight to nine players last year that you can rotate because nobody came off the bench and, and really provided any type of spark or anything that impressed me against Duke where Duke on the other hand, Kyle, man, they were rotating eight guys and everyone contributed. Even Theo John, who has always disappointed me, the Marquette transfer, this guy is a beast, but he can't score worth a damn, but boy, did he put in some really good rebounds, got to the line, drained a couple shots, and Duke proved to me that they have more depth, and they won the game, deservingly so. So Gonzaga, to me, is a team that will beat up everybody they're supposed to in the Western Conference. They'll win a couple good out-of-conference games, but when it comes down to it, this year, this will be your typical Gonzaga team that will lose, I think, in the Elite Eight. I don't think they're the same as last year. I don't see them making a run to the Final Four championship. Not enough, de- not enough depth. And if you get one key injury in February and March, that's going to shift a lot of momentum, uh, and it's going to hurt them. So, uh, But it was a great game, and Timmy did come on at the towards the middle to end of the second half, got into foul trouble, but still, not enough players. Uh, Nemhart's really good, but... It's six players, and when you play the big boys in the tournament, you better have eight or nine, and that is what the difference is between the 2020 Gonzaga team and this 2021 team. You know, I I hadn't been following all the players and stuff like that. Obviously, I know Duke has the number one recruit and Chet's the number two, or some places he's one and the other places Duke is guy's number two. Um, But even still, I was just watching that game, and my biggest takeaway was Duke looks fun. Duke looks like they're having a lot of fun playing that because they were, you know, hitting three pointers in pull up. They had dunks and it was it was just fun to watch Duke play basketball. And obviously they lose to Ohio State immediately after. And it's all very confusing. But that's that's me just not knowing college basketball yet and tuning in because you've given that game that has stakes behind it, which is obviously 
the two of the best teams in the country and two of the best players in the country. And I found the game to be thoroughly enjoying, uh, enjoyable. That's my analysis. Well, let me say this before I let you go. Um, since the pandemic, since COVID, there has not been, in my opinion, an, a more electric game than Duke and Zaga last weekend. That crowd in Las Vegas was electric and it was loud, and you saw a lot of good prospects on the floor that may play in the pros. And I think, to me, it was the most fun basketball game at the college level, by far, bar none, since COVID has entered our world. So um, was happy to watch the whole thing, even though it started extremely late here on the East Coast, but I'm glad I stayed up. I raise you that UCLA Gonzaga final four game last year was quite impeccable. And that that Gonzaga, the Gonzaga Duke had those same vibes because it was just up and down, up and down, tons of scoring and dunks and three pointers and Timmy getting in foul trouble. And how does that play into it? And then obviously Gonzaga went on a little run there with, I think I forgot the guy's name. I didn't recognize him from last year's team, but he, he hit like six, three pointers for Gonzaga and, yeah, that game was so great. I think I, I'm right there with you. This was a thoroughly enjoyable college basketball game. I've, I've watched one full game all season. I picked a good one to watch. Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. And Kyle, I uh, appreciate your time as always. Love the podcast. Hope I can join you soon. Follow us at beerlife.com. Subscribe to our picks, Razor 50. That will get you 50% off your first month dues. When receiving by text message, it's so simple. It just goes to your phone. You don't have to look up picks from our Oracle plus 75 units. Uh, Happy holidays to everyone. Happy Hanukkah out there for those that celebrate Hanukkah. And of course, uh, Merry Christmas coming up in a few weeks.